You may or may not have the perfect shop, with enticing visual merchandising, high-performing stock, healthy profits and a motivated and reliable staff. Whatever the reality of your retail enterprise, how do you ensure the sale to the customer who desperately wants that print but needs to wait until payday? What about the customer who wants that special scarf as a birthday surprise for their partner who happens to be standing right next to them? And don't forget the tourist who has their eye on a tea set that would surely smash on the flight home. With e-commerce, you stand a greater chance of making the sale and of reaching countless other customers who haven't visited your physical shop at all. I'm Ted from the Cultural Enterprises Academy, and on this episode of the Cultural Enterprises Podcast, we don't ask whether you can afford to have an e-commerce offer, but can you afford not to have one? Simply put, e-commerce is the ability to sell products and fulfill orders online, opening up your potential customer base to anyone, anywhere, anytime, as long as they have an internet connection and you have the resources to fulfill the orders. Over the years, there's been certain products that we've had, you know, breakout success with online. So our buyers are starting to see, okay, not everything is selling online that's selling in the stores. It's generally a handful of products that are driving sales. So they've started buying to that, especially during fourth quarter when we approach holiday. More from that fascinating discussion later, featuring e-commerce experts from both sides of the Atlantic. Before that, here's Joanne Whitworth, Media and Communications Manager at the Association for Cultural Enterprises, with an introduction to e-commerce and why it fits so well in the cultural sector, written exclusively for the Cultural Enterprises podcast by Jeff Sheridan. Jeff is the founder and managing director of Matrix Internet, a full-service digital agency with in-house specialists in the entire digital mix, including e-commerce strategy. With 640 active clients, many of whom are in the cultural sector, Jeff is the perfect person to help you dip your toe in the online water. Selling online, otherwise known as e-commerce, is here to stay. Love it or hate it, it's become a way of life as we head towards 2020. As internet speeds improve, the internet is only going to become more ubiquitous in our lives. Here are some thought-provoking facts about how the internet is used by us, the general public, in 2019. This year will be the first time in history that more video will be watched online than on regular televisions. The world's largest taxi company owns no taxis. The world's largest accommodation provider owns no property. 90% of the UK adult population uses the internet and four out of every five adults are on Facebook. The Financial Times has four times more digital readers than print readers. People are now increasingly talking to search engines in a conversational way and voice technology is growing. Trust in technology is at an all-time high with more and more people asking Google, Siri and Alexa for answers to everyday problems. Half of all Google searches will be done through voice by 2020. You may be wondering at this point how the UK compares with other countries in terms of online buying. In Europe, the UK leads the way with 18% of all retail sales happening online. This is over twice as much as the EU average of 8.8%. It could be said that shoppers in the UK are significantly more tech-savvy than in any other country in Europe. Can you afford to miss out on this market? So by now, 
you're probably wondering how you can either get or improve your slice of the e-commerce pie. This may depend on your efforts to date and the current purchasing process on your website. The first non-negotiable recommendation is that it should be straightforward for your visitors to make an online purchase from your website. Why not do a trial by asking five typical visitors to make a purchase from your website, recording their progress at every point? If your website passes that test with flying colours, you are now in a good place to move to the next level. E-commerce is a bit like a motorway with different lanes. The good news is that whether you're in the slow lane or even the hard shoulder, it is very straightforward to improve your e-commerce offering as long as you genuinely prioritise it within your organisation. Thanks to Joanne and Jeff for that. To find out more about Matrix Internet, visit www.matrixinternet.ie. Earlier this year, at the Cultural Enterprises Conference, our Digital Director Robin Cantrell Fenwick spent some time chatting to a pair of hugely influential figures in the world of cultural sector e-commerce. We'll let them introduce themselves. I'm Zach Mensah, and I'm Head of Transformation for the Culture Team, which is part of Bristol City Council. Uh, Bradley Platts, I'm the Assistant Director of E-Commerce at the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco. Guys, thank you so much for being here today. I think it'd be really helpful for our listeners if you could just start by giving us an introduction to your organisations, what they do, the kind of size of the organisation, and where e-commerce fits into the work of your, your museum. So, Bradley, let's start with you. Through our online store, it's built on Shopify Plus. We sell retail products, we sell memberships, uh, we've also started introducing a number of digital products, things like donations and gift packages, um, among other things. Our online store business does about 10% of our overall retail business, roughly about half a million a year is what we've grown it to. And the last couple years, it's especially grown on the strength of digital offerings and kind of non-traditional product offerings is where we've seen the most significant growth. Thank you. I'm Zach. So in Bristol, we've got five museums. We get about a million visitors a year through our, through our museums. And our retail as bricks and mortar is worth about half a million a year, of which one and a half percent is our conversion rate for our, for our shop. We use Shopify. And the reason for that is, like many people, it's easy and simple to use and affordable. So we thought it's a good thing to start off with. You're both in organizations that have mature e-commerce offerings. How did that come to be? What was the organizational imperative that led you to grow a mature e-commerce offering? Let's start with Zach. So in our case, about 2015, it was quite clear that we would have to have a reduction in our public funding. And so we were told that we would lose overall about a million pounds over the next five years. So for us, growing all different revenue streams is really important. As, as a service, we have about 50 different ways we make money. So having a 51st way of making money seemed like a very sensible um, thing. And because every year online gets more and more, more mature, more and more people use online for all sorts of things, for us it was kind of, let's learn about it now where it's not critical before it does become critical. So we, over the next couple of years we can learn more about the business. Um, and so that's what we decided to do. For us, you know, being based in San Francisco and so close to Silicon Valley, you know, over the last several years, technology initiatives have, have taken like very high priority. And we've been behind in, in catching up as museums and institutions. So I think, you know, looking at us compared to 
for-profit organizations, there's a there's kind of a steep learning curve. We had a, we had a lot of catching up to do. So about uh, four years ago, we migrated from kind of an internally hosted legacy solution that had been around for a long time to Shopify Plus, and that's really that really was kind of the founding project um, that really kicked off e-commerce growth. And then I think once we started to see the amount of growth that was coming through the platform was when we started getting a lot more buy-in across the institution for growing out other types of products, other offerings. And these days it's, it's really easy to, to convince people that we need to drive sales through this channel. I mean, I, I think everyone's aware of the growth and the, and the continued growth that we're going to see over the next several years. So with all that growth, if I go onto your online shop and I buy one of your distinctive products, how does that then arrive on my doorstep? Is it packed up by somebody who works in the shop? We do a little bit of both. We, we have an off-site warehouse that handles our online order fulfillment, about 90% of our orders. We also fulfill all of our membership orders through our membership department on-site. And then we do some fulfillment from the stores, mostly store pickup orders, obviously, and express shipments, depending on what time the order comes through. Being that we operate at several different locations and our inventory is different between locations, it often takes a lot of you know, coordinating and, and kind of working on the fly to get orders out, depending on what's, what's ordered. So we do ship from everywhere. And I imagine it's taken a significant number, uh, amount of time to get to the point where you have that maturity of, of fulfillment. That must have been a journey of some years. I think so. I mean, for us, it, it definitely comes in waves depending on the strength of our exhibitions. So in the past, you know, we have scaled and seen huge order loads when we weren't able to like meet those demands with our platforms and systems. So that was a lot of reason that we invested so heavily in, in building this stuff out over the years was for these situations where we, we were overwhelmed um, by order load. And Zach, I'm on your online shop. I've chosen to uh, buy something from it. Have you got warehousing and fulfillment houses behind you? No. So I guess we're kind of step one in comparison to Bradley where we want to end up where Bradley is. Um, but currently we operate from our shops. So our products sit in one of our two shops and we have to fulfill them by checking our inventory. A member of the retail team will then package it. Um, one of the top tips I'd recommend is we, we used to spend quite a lot of money on packaging, and now we, to be greener, and it's easier for us, we reuse the um, packaging that we get for our other suppliers, um, and then the staff have to physically go to the newsagent, um, and we use a ser- service called My Hermes, so you're able to pay about £2.50, and you leave it at the newsagent, someone comes and picks it up. So yes, yeah, so our, our process compared to even two years ago is slicker, but it's still a manual process um, for us to go through it at this point. But still commercially viable and, and, and worth worth pursuing. Yeah, and it's worth, it's worth doing because we keep it simple. I think if we made it a lot more complicated and add lots of cost to it, it wouldn't be worth it for us. So for us, it's kind of like saying that whilst the margin when you add staff time isn't as good as someone coming into the bricks and mortar shops, actually it's still profitable for us to do that. And who are the people who are buying from your online shops? I would say primarily most of our customers, even online, are, are very local. You know, they're based in the several counties around the San Francisco Bay Area. On the flip side, though, we, we do a steady amount of shipping all over the world because we do have a big tourist draw at the museums. And then 
We also, like during really successful exhibitions where we may have a book or a publication that is kind of has a wider appeal, we'll do a lot of um, international orders for, for publications. Thank you. Um, Zach, is it the same story for you? Yeah, so for us, it's kind of, in some ways, seems surprising, but speaking to everyone, it seems normal that actually lots of local people will buy from you. You kind of assume that an online shop just means you'll get people from far-flung stretches of the parts of the world. But in actuality, lots of local people use it as a way for um, kick and collect. So people will order, they'll come into the shop, they'll find something with the other half, they won't want to buy it as a, as a gift there and then, so then they will go online, find it, and they'll ring us sometimes or they'll come in and or order online. So for us, again, if we can get more people, about 80% of people are local, if we're trying to convince as many of those people to come and collect it, because actually then we keep more profit rather than having to lose some of that to, to the shipping costs. Gentlemen, you both mentioned you're using Shopify. Best service out there for, for, for this? You know, if you were seeking to set up an online shop for the first time, would you choose to uh, build bespoke if you possibly could or are the off the platform options uh, good enough for for this sector honestly i i don't see any reason to build e-commerce software from the ground up these days simply because it it goes out of date so quickly so yeah i, I would definitely recommend shopify one of the great things about it is just how quick to market you can be and how flexible you can be and Zach, I have seen you walking around this conference center uh, here in Brighton with an app showing you live sales, conversion rate sales, so you can plug into the performance of your online shop while you're far away from base. Absolutely, literally immediately. So the second someone does an online order, it comes through on my phone, so you can be notified immediately around your orders, which makes it much then easier for you to fulfill as quickly as possible. So we, we have a, a, an aim that we should get out our orders if they arrive before 3 p.m. the same day. So we, we are trying our best to be as quick as possible because competitors um, like Amazon, people just expect now when they order something, it arrives really, really quickly. And so we have to try and meet that expectation. So yeah, we use Shopify, it's brilliant. I think the basic package is something like $10. So you could get up and running the same afternoon using off-the-shelf templates. And then as Bradley says, you you could invest in your own infrastructure and things like that, but I don't see why you would. Certainly if your turnover is, you know, not unless it's in the tens of millions, would you want to look at going higher than Shopify? So Zach, you mentioned the gargantuan elephant in the room that is Amazon. And if I am sitting at home looking for the kind of distinctive, unique product that I like to give people at Christmas, I'm still probably going to start searching with Amazon. So what is the, the, the advantage of Shopify over being just part of a, an enormous platform like Amazon? By doing it yourself, you keep the most margin um, and you have full control over it. Um, so for us, it fits into our normal workflow. So we actually use Shopify as well for our bricks and mortar shops. So we, we don't, it's not much for us to stick it online anyway. So it's, it's very little uh, friction, but we would consider Amazon, Etsy, you know, there are other marketplaces and depending on what you sell, they may be a good place to be. Bradley, how do you approach Amazon? For us, we do sell a little bit on Amazon. Uh, there's an existing integration with Shopify, which is kind of the reason we started experimenting with it. We only list about half a dozen products on Amazon. Generally, they're all books, which is what we've tested so far. You know, we have a publications department at the museum and, you know, we'll publish catalogs for pretty much every exhibition we have. Sometimes they sell out and sometimes they don't. When they don't and we're left with kind of a lot of backstock, 
that's kind of when we started looking for creative ways to sell them and, and Amazon came up. And to be honest, there's titles that we can't move in our stores, we can't move them in our online store, but because they're so keyword heavy with major artist names, they're selling on Amazon consistently. So we've been able to reduce overstock catalogs through the Amazon channel. But, you know, the caveat there is I, I don't like to list everything on Amazon. That's why I like selling through our own platform, mainly because we keep control of the customer communication. We get the data on the customers, their purchase histories fed into our email marketing software. And you can't get any of that when you're selling through Amazon because those are Amazon's customers, right? But fascinating that you've got a, a marriage of convenience in that, you know, everybody listening to this will be familiar with having stock in the stock room that you simply can't sell. And you've got a kind of, there's a, there's a long tail approach there where you can have that stock available on Amazon, as you say, keyword heavy, and it will hopefully sell itself gradually over time. What a great potential solution to, to that issue which so many people face. Gentlemen, if you were, if we rewind back, 10 years uh, in each of your careers, if you were just starting out in e-commerce, if you're working for an organization that does not currently have an e-commerce offering, where would you start? What advice would you give to someone in that position? In my case, I would start off with you know, the sh- Shopify. Um, and I would just suggest that people just try it, as in literally they just follow the steps from the Shopify guidance that says, getting, you're new to Shopify, here's how you can get up and running in a couple of hours. Um, and one of the things that we, we should, I should have learned if I could tell myself when we started again, was to use the supplier's images. We spent too long faffing around doing our own photography at the beginning, and actually we should have just used the excellent photography that the supplier already provided. And then you have to just try these things. The digital doesn't break the internet if you get it wrong. You just got to give it a go and you won't get it right first time. One of the things we did was we contracted an agency to build us a custom theme. Having a kind of a custom theme in place was really important to us so that it didn't look like a template. After several years of living with the custom theme, we are missing out on a lot of new features that are rolling out for the theme editor, things like sections, which I'm sure you're familiar with. It's kind of the one part of the platform that hasn't kept up as our front end, and it does require me to outsource to an agency when I do want front end changes, major front end changes. So I think just kind of looking long term and setting yourself up, at least in the beginning, without too much customization, just to get up and running on the platform would be a good way to start, whatever platform that is. And final question, what about the link with buying? Yeah, so we have, uh, at the museums, we have uh, one merchandise buyer and one book and media buyer. And we're definitely reliant on the products that they choose. But I think over the years, there's been certain products that we've had you know, breakout success with online So our buyers are starting to see, okay, not everything is selling online that's selling in the stores. It's generally a handful of products that are driving sales. So they've started buying to that, especially during fourth quarter when we approach holiday. Zach, uh, how do you come by the the products that are on your uh, online shop? So for us, we started off, I guess, like a lot of people where you put your best sellers on there first. So we started to sell our best sellers. But you mentioned the long tail earlier. And interestingly, it's some of our niche products that do best. So it's not always your top sellers that sell in the bricks and mortar shop that do well online. And also, we've, we've taken a decision a little while ago um, to do a thing called drop shipping. 
So drop shipping is where an order comes in, but then the supplier fulfills it. So we never actually handle the stock. And that's a really good way that you can actually have a much bigger range. You don't necessarily stock in your shops. So we, for example, have a number of products that you can only get online, which we don't stock for various reasons, or we maybe stocked in the past but decided not to sell them. But they are worth selling online. But for us, that just becomes another good way of us having a good product range. Um, and particularly, I think, for some items that are tricky in terms of their weight or their dimensions. So certain suppliers are really good at getting things to arrive undamaged, Whereas no matter what we try, for example, anything that's in a frame gets smashed to pieces no matter which carrier we use. So some of those kinds of things, let them, let the other suppliers deal with some of those issues. And also if they fulfill it, it means that we never had to handle it in the first place. That's the most cost-effective way for us to do that. And nearly always they give us the same margin. So actually we're, we're getting the best of both worlds. So I definitely recommend um, people take a look at the concept of drop shipping. What was once the Brave New World, now a mature and established part of uh, your two organisations, Retail Mix. Thank you so much, gentlemen, for being with us today. Thanks again to Bradley and Zach. Bradley was the first beneficiary of the International Exchange Programme between the Association for Cultural Enterprises and America's Museum Store Association. The programme also saw Louise Kirby, Director of Operations and People at The Deep in Hull, represent the UK at MSA Forward 2019 in San Diego. If you would like more information on the programme or to see if applications are open, head on over to www.culturalenterprises.org.uk. So, still unsure on e-commerce or wondering if you're getting the most out of your current offer? These top tips will help. Tip 1. The key to successful online retail in the long run is to get repeat custom. Customer retention allows you to reduce marketing spend as they'll come directly to you instead of via your paid advertising, which can be costly. At present, paid advertising works, but each referral costs money. So you want this to be focused on new customer acquisition only. Tip two. If you want to keep in the loop about all things e-commerce, you should listen to the Jason and Scott podcast. The topics they cover are just as relevant to the cultural sector as to the private sector, so it's a great resource. Tip 3. Make your workflow for online orders as effective as possible. Spend as little time as you can to maximise your margin by keeping costs per transaction as low as possible. Tip 4. You will have marketing and delivery costs, but this is no different to your physical overheads such as rent and utilities. So don't worry that your online sales aren't pure profit. Tip 5. Potential customers who are reluctant to purchase online can still see your products on your website, increasing the possibility of telephone and in-store conversion. Tip 6. Offer collect in-store as an option. Not only will this save you delivery fees, it may also produce additional in-store sales. Tip 7. Ask your suppliers to provide product details, including photos and descriptions. This will save you time and money by not reinventing the wheel. Avoid taking your own photographs until you have the time 
confidence and proper equipment to make them look professional. Tip 8. Amazon are the market leader, so it's a good idea to understand how they structure product pages, down to the tiniest detail, as they know what works. For example, using likely keywords right at the start of the product description. Tip 9. Finally and crucially, don't treat online retail as a separate part of your retail offer. Online is now just one part of the business and it works best when considered within the whole of your business. That about wraps it up for this episode. Are you already frantically downloading Shopify and begging your marketing team to let you have a Twitter account for your shop? If not, remember, the online marketplace may be a crowded one, but it's very much one you could benefit from being a part of. As always, we would love to have your feedback on the podcast. Is there anything more you'd like to know about e-commerce? Which topics would you like covered in the future? Do you have an idea for a feature or would you like to be a guest on the show? Please contact us at info at culturalenterprises.org.uk. Don't forget to like, share and subscribe. The Cultural Enterprises podcast is available on all major podcast streaming apps, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Thank you very much for listening and we hope to see you again next time.